Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Pamela Rotner Sakamoto. Pamela is an American historian who specializes in U.S.-Japan relations. Her book, Midnight in Broad Daylight, now available in paperback, chronicles the story of the Fukuhara family, a Japanese-American family who found themselves caught between the United States and Japan during World War II. The narrative covers important historical moments that have personal repercussions for the family, including Pearl Harbor, the Japanese-American internment camps, and the atomic bomb at Hiroshima. On the phone right now, we have Pamela Rotner Sakamoto, author of Midnight in Broad Daylight, a Japanese-American family caught between two worlds. And Pamela, again, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. All right. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about was your research process going into this book. Um, From what I understand, this was almost 20 years in the making. Yes, it took a very long time. Uh, With the research, I basically had the idea first and then realized there was so much that I didn't know and that I really had to learn. And my idea was that uh, this was a story of a Japanese-American family divided by war in which one son, Harry, had enlisted in the U.S. Army from an internment camp and uh, potentially could have met his uh, brothers who were in the Japanese Imperial Army on the battlefield in the Pacific. And there's also the element of the atomic bomb in Hiroshima where uh, their mother and eldest brother were living in 1945. So I looked at that sort of nutshell and I realized I have to approach this from many different points. And I started to make categories. For example, um, I it really is a, a century-long saga in which I look at the parents' immigration to the United States from Japan. And the father was uh, a young teenager who went to work on the railroads, which was a very common story for Japanese who emigrated to the West Coast in the early 1900s. So I made a category of looking at the uh, history of Japanese immigration to the United States, and that allowed me to look at young men who went to work on the railroads and young women like Harry's mother, who was a picture bride, who had an arranged marriage um, to his father through a middle man matchmaker um, and on the basis of a photograph. So that was one category. I looked at anti-Japanese laws, the Great Depression, the internment of Japanese Americans, the nature of the city Hiroshima pre-war, during the war, post-war life in the Japanese military, the atomic bomb, and I had these larger sort of headings, and then I made sure that I read general histories, uh, memoirs, all uh, books of photographs that I reviewed, original documents, and um, I just made sure that I had as much as possible in each category so that when I wrote, I would have enough context uh, to be really accurate in that respect. And that also led me to the kinds of questions that I wanted to ask 
the protagonist because this has a huge element of oral history with Harry and his surviving uh, family members. So that was the, the general approach, and it took a long time to do all that reading, uh, but there were many other reasons that the project took so long. And you, um, you developed a very close relationship with Harry as you did this. Yes, I mean, I, I met him in 1994 in Tokyo by chance, and he was a retired U.S. Army colonel, and he was completely bilingual, and I was very taken by him. Um, I saw him at a press conference in Tokyo where he was assisting a group of former Holocaust um, refugees who had been saved by a Japanese diplomat and were back in Japan for the first time in 50 years. And they were very nervous about being in Japan, and there were Japanese diplomats who didn't quite know what to do with them as they sought to honor their own, and there were American journalists. And he moved between these three different groups with utmost ease, was clearly a man in at the top of his form. Um, and I was impressed, um, didn't think too much more, and then I heard a bit about his story and realized that he could reach out to all of these people because he understood their own stories on different levels, and he was extraordinary himself, and he um, ended up reaching out to me. We talked for four years, occasionally over lunch, when he would come to Japan, where I was living, from California, where he was retired. And he slowly told me his story. I met him when he was in his 70s. He was very sharp. I think he wanted to leave a legacy of his life at that point, and he finally had time to do so and distance. And we just talked, and I asked him in 1998 if he would be interested in my doing a book, but I would apply all of the historian's tools to it. And he said uh, yes. And he introduced me to his brothers the next day, and I was also very close to Frank, and we worked together for years and years until they both passed away. Yeah, no, it's so so fascinating, um, and just this—it's interesting. You mentioned how he's um, so comfortable between the two countries. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting reading this was um, this back and forth that he and a lot of his family experience how they're living between these two countries and how this creates a conflict for them, not only in terms of their identity, but also in terms of their education, how they're getting pieces here, pieces there, and falling behind in some respects. Um, and then also socially, a lot of the um, discrimination they face, obviously, with the internment camps um, here during World War II, but also for uh, his family who went back to live in Hiroshima, how they were viewed negatively uh, because they had lived in America and identified as Japanese-American. Right. I mean, it's so true. Every member of that family was really betwixt and between. And uh, the parents had the most honorable of goals when they had five children in the United States. They believed that their children would be Americans and would spend their lives there. Uh, but because there was such endemic discrimination at both the federal and state level um, on the West Coast, uh, they also realized that their children would have trouble professionally. So it was very common in the 1920s and the 1930s for Japanese immigrant parents to send their American-born children back to Japan for some um, study for several years of schooling so that they would then acquire facility in Japanese and an understanding of Japanese ways and be able to return to the U.S. and market that language um, as a bilingual capability. And 
and also for a daughter, there was only one daughter in the family, Mary, that she would be a more attractive bride. Uh, so the parents were aware that their children would have trouble uh, and they sought to resolve it, but of course that created new problems. This was an era before ESL and other services, so that when the two older children were sent to Japan for about six years and returned in the uh, around 1930, uh, they were teenagers who would have been in the upper level of high school and they were placed in the second grade because they no longer understood English. And Harry didn't really understand them. They, Harry and his younger brothers, Pierce and Frank, they were almost as, um, as if they had been raised completely separately from their elder brother, Victor, and elder sister, Mary. But um, the younger boys would then experience what the elder uh, kids had because when their dad died at the height of the Great Depression and their mother saw no choice but to return to her native Hiroshima with her children, the kids who had not been to Japan before and only spoke broken Japanese at home ended up experiencing what their older brother and sister had. Uh, when Harry was raised outside of Seattle, he had no idea that he was different from anybody else. He felt just like anybody named Smith or Ferguson or any of his pals. Uh, but at the same time, and that, I think part of that was wishful thinking of because he was young, uh, he did have a sense as he became a teenager, uh, that he liked girls a lot, and he liked uh, white girls, and yet he knew that he couldn't really ask them for a date. Uh, he knew that they wouldn't be able to go out with him, uh, and so he just sort of backed away from that and buried that hesitation. And uh, then his brothers, for example, back in Japan, uh, Harry did go back with his family, uh, so at one point, all of the children and their mother were in Japan, but then Mary, the sister, and Harry, the middle son, convinced their mom that they wanted to return to the U.S. when they finished high school in Japan, and she allowed them to do so. So then we had two families again, with um, Pierce and Frank, the younger boys in Japan, as well as their elder brother and Mary and Harry back in the U.S., and this is in the late 1930s leading up to the internment. And Frank, meanwhile, and Pierce are struggling in Japan because they're perceived as Americans. They look Japanese, they acquire native Japanese very quickly, but there's something about them. They don't quite move like the Japanese do. Their gestures are expansive, the reactions are highlighted, uh, they dress differently, uh, they, they respond to teachers not necessarily with utmost obedience but with a little bit of critical thinking even and all of this these are cues that their Japanese peers pick up on and view them as different and as outsiders so really the whole family wherever they were whenever they were in a place were never really at home and yet they navigated these cultures so beautifully and I believe that that's probably one reason that those who did survive this horrible war were so successful because they had been raised um, honorably but with a sense of discomfort from never being at home in either culture and yet they understood both cultures intimately but that sense of being on the edge gave them a heightened empathy and sensitivity to both cultures that served them well in all of their post-war endeavors. Yeah, and then all of them, um, especially Harry and Mary to that extent, uh, but even um, Frank and Pierce, they still all have that love for the United States, even though 
you know, as you say, it's not particularly kind to them, um, especially with the internment camps um, and all the discrimination they see beforehand. But then, you know, in spite of all that, Harry still feels this love for his country winds up enlisting. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, born in the U.S., uh, raised there. Uh, Harry ended up going back when his mom took all the kids back to Japan after their father's death in 1933, so he was 13, and Frank was uh, four years younger, so nine. And right, The kids, they uh, always viewed the United States as their home, yet they couldn't be there. And necessarily, and when they were there, Harry and Mary were interned, which was an experience of utmost despair. And Harry felt himself turning. Uh, he was an ebullient, extrovert, um, optimistic, energetic, uh, forward-thinking. And yet, in the camp at Gila River in Arizona, he found himself changing into an angry, resentful, bitter person, and he feared what he would become. So when he had a chance uh, to get out of camp, which is what enlisting in the U.S. Army represented to him, uh, he seized it. He just didn't really envision that he would be sent to the Pacific because he wore glasses. He had been wearing them since he was in elementary school, and he had terrible eyesight. He couldn't see the, the large E on an eye chart from a few feet away without his glasses. And so he was assured that he would not be sent to the Pacific. He would probably stay stateside and translate documents. Uh, but in fact, he was such a great people person. And uh, translating was something he could do with ease, but interrogating uh, and talking to people was something he could do even better, and he was sent to the Pacific. So it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people uh, who have written articles about him over time will say, you know, he enlisted from an internment camp to show his patriotism to his country. And, well, he was a great patriot uh, right up until the end of his life at age 95. Uh, he enlisted for much more complicated reasons. Uh, he was in fear of losing his own soul, and joining the Army represented a way to save it by just getting him outside the camp itself. And now, despite this patriotism, you know, he does see very much this dark side of his country um, with the internment camps and then the atomic bomb that does wind up injuring and killing several members of his family. Did this, from your experience, have sort of a long-term effect on Harry in terms of his view of the United States? Hmm, that's a really good question. I think that um, he took the detonation of the atomic bomb over Hiroshima personally. And he blamed himself, blamed himself from the moment that he heard the news that was trickling into Manila, where he was based in August 1945, uh, and knew nothing other than it was a massive new kind of bomb that had perhaps wiped out the entire city and nothing would grow there for 75 or more years. Uh, and then he blamed himself when he Reunited, It was as if he had detonated the bomb himself. And then he turned that around, and I almost think it was unconscious or subconscious, and used that sense of almost survivor's guilt to motivate him to create a life of meaning and purpose. And he did end up uh, initially leaving the U.S. Army in 1946, when his whole unit was decommissioned after the war, 
but then he needed to get back to Japan to take care of his family. And the only way to get back to uh, this war-trotted country under complete Allied occupation was for him to uh, re-enlist in the U.S. Army, which is what he did. And he stayed in the Army for almost 50 years. When he retired, he was one of the first Japanese-American colonels. He had received awards from the Japanese Emperor and the United States President. Uh, he even uh, as recently as last year had a major intelligence hall named after him on the island of Oahu at a base Schofield Barracks which had been strafed by Japanese zeros en route to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, but and during that 50 year period of diligent and really tireless service to the United States in military intelligence in the U.S. Army, I believe that it was all sort of motivated at heart um, by building bridges between the two countries so that a war would never take place again and by perhaps avenging um, the loss of his own loved ones for which he felt, felt partly responsible. Absolutely. No, it's just such a testament to his resilience and his strength and all that. And he remained optimistic and he remained patriotic. I mean, I guess if you're a colonel, you can't be otherwise. Um, but he was a mentor for decades to many on both sides of the Pacific. And uh, it's he... He was deeply affected, though, by his personal losses. He had nightmares for a long time about what happened to them. And uh, I think he probably had undiagnosed um, PTSD from some of his experiences during the war. Uh, but yes, deeply troubled, sunny during the day, um, but wrestling with some of those demons at night. Especially because his um, job during the war was really so thankless, and they were largely kept invisible, um, both from the Japanese because they, the army was worried that if the Japanese knew about these um, Japanese Americans working with the army, they would be targeted specifically, but then also keeping them hidden from a lot of the U.S. soldiers because of some of the discrimination and the animosity over Pearl Harbor. So he's really oh. just caught in the middle of all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really interesting. Here's this new uh, unit, the Military Intelligence Service, that is a arising from utmost necessity because uh, initially the Japanese were just sweeping across the Pacific and they were so confident that no one could read their battle plans and intelligence uh, because of the complexity of the Japanese language that they would just leave documents as they advanced. Uh, and it's true, there were no more than a few handfuls of people in the U.S. military who could read uh, that intelligence. and. So uh, the U.S. military did not want the Japanese to know that it was responding with this unit of Japanese Americans who were completely bilingual and who were the ones who could in particular read Japanese cursive, which was very difficult to read. Uh, but those Japanese Americans were in danger. They were in danger of friendly fire and the enmity of Americans towards the Japanese and vice versa was so brutal, both groups demonized and dehumanized each other, uh, that uh, the Japanese Americans were in mortal danger and at different periods they had bodyguards accompanying them for um, protection against friendly fire. There was also fear that if the Japanese Americans were captured by the Japanese Imperial Army troops, the fact that they were ethnically Japanese would make them appear
here to be traitors in the Japanese Imperial Army eyes, troops uh, in their eyes, and that they would torture them and uh, imprison and even kill them in a way that would be much worse than others. And uh, the U.S. military didn't want that to happen to its interrogators and translators. And there was also the fear that um, if the Japanese Americans were captured by Japanese Imperial Army soldiers, that the Japanese Americans who had families in Japan, people like Harry, uh, that their families would also uh, experience retaliation in Japan, that they would be perceived as spies, uh, that they could be hurt as well. So on so many different levels, this was a treacherous task uh, to be posted to the Pacific as an interrogator or a translator. Uh, when I was in Washington at the National Archives looking at some of the different unit primary source documents, I found um, an, a letter about um, the need for Japanese-American troops in Europe to demonstrate Japanese-American loyalty to the United States. And this was before the formation of the um, 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which uh, became one of the most decorated units in American military history and fought valiantly in Europe. Uh, but I thought that document was so interesting because the military intelligence service guys like Harry and his friends were already toiling in the Pacific trying to demonstrate their patriotism, trying to um, vanquish the Japanese, and many of them did have family members in Japan, and nevertheless, their own military didn't even know that they were there and was working to create this Europe-bound unit, segregated unit, that would demonstrate um, Japanese-American loyalty. So they were truly invisible. Uh, the Signal Corps, which takes pictures of troops and uh, disseminates communications, they were not permitted to take photos of the Japanese Americans in the Pacific because of the danger um, that those Japanese Americans could experience if the photos fell into the wrong hands. So they they were undercover. It's so true. I want to shift a bit to um, t today. Um, and w at one point in the book, you say when you're talking about the discrimination that the family receives very early on, you say the issue of citizenship turned on color. It always had. Do you see any parallels today um, from what happened then? Do you think we could be headed in a direction where an internment camp could be a thing that conceivably happens again? I do, and I think it's absolutely chilling. Uh, Justice, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, when he was alive, came to the University of Hawaii um, Law School. This was several years ago. And he gave a speech, uh, and in the midst of a Q&A, he was asked this question whether an internment could ever occur again. And this was a time of relative peace. It was uh, not during an election season. It was, of course, post 9-11, but it wasn't um, during a time of a, a response to a heightened terrorist attack somewhere in the world. And he said um, he was really definitive at in times of war, the laws go silent. And what he meant is that if something can be somehow justified on the basis of national security, then anything goes, and including an internment. And unfortunately, in the past year, we have heard the term in the press um, 
of the tournament more than we have heard it in many recent years. And it has been raised as a plausible solution to um, suspicion of people of, of different ethnicities, particularly the Muslim American community. Um, I think it's frightening, it's racial profiling, it's stereotyping, it's prejudice, and it's a very slippery slope uh, for a nation to um, enter. Uh, and we should learn our lessons because there is no other single incident uh, beyond the internment that has been perceived as such a blot on sort of the American national character and uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt's uh, term in office. Uh, the internment was hasty, it was fundamentally discriminatory, it was harsh, it was um, proven to have had no effect whatsoever because the ethnic Japanese in the United States were no threat. Uh, there was not a single case of successful prosecution of alleged uh, espionage or sabotage by Japanese Americans during this period. And uh, I think that we have to look at that and say in a, in the internment concept is unacceptable. And if we're concerned about a particular ethnicity, we just need to know more about them. We need to engage. We need to understand that um, no one is any different than anyone else. We have different traditions and cultures, but we cannot jump to conclusions. And Harry, if he were alive now, would be tirelessly going to high schools and community centers and uh, anywhere where, which welcomed him and talking about that because he feared that too. Uh, I don't think he foresaw that it would be as heightened as the emotions are right now, uh, but he knew too that it was always possible. I think that is a very good point, um, engagement over jumping to conclusions, and I, I hope that's not the direction we're heading in. I do too, and I, I hope that, I believe that education is always the answer, and that people are fundamentally good, and we just need um, to know each other better, and uh, the ethnic Japanese community in the United States, the Japanese American National Museum, for example, in Los Angeles has spearheaded this, as has um, the Digital Archive Densho and the Foundation Go For Broke. They are, they are all working um, to raise awareness of the internment episode, and they have been among the first groups to um, reach out to Muslim Americans and say, we understand and we will do everything in our power to make sure that this does not happen again. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of education, uh, I want to end this on a light note with you. So this is a question that we ask all of our guests. Since this podcast is primarily for professors and teachers, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, <laughs> my God, there have been so many. <laughs> and, and I mean, really, it starts at the elementary school level and goes right through graduate school. And I think my favorite teacher if I can give sort of a composite, is somebody who is just so passionate about the topic and does not presume that his or her students know anything about it, but are curious too and sort of welcomes um, the students with open arms into that discipline. And somebody who is actually interdisciplinary, who uh, is willing to look at the world in a number of different ways through literature, art, history, politics, uh, military history, science, you name it, that's going to be my favorite teacher. Very well put. Well, thank you so much for a lovely conversation. Oh, Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for speaking with me today, too. You're welcome. You're welcome.
You take care, Michael. All right, you too. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.